everyone and welcome back to the Artistic Futures podcast. My name is Mary and in this series I will be meeting some extraordinary people who work in music and opera and who are keen to share their passion with the next generation. From performers to designers, directors to choreographers, you will get an insight into how a range of artists built on their careers turning what they enjoy doing and were good at into a profession. Again, it will be full of useful tips and advice for those of you who would be tempted to give it a go. So, let's get started. To open season 3, I met with Jamie Say to chat about sustainability in the arts and the very important behind-the-scene work of technicians. Jamie studied sound technology at the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts and spent a large part of his career working as a sound and lighting technician. In 2021, he became the technical manager of the Howard Assembly Room in Leeds. As a sustainability champion, Jamie also chaired Opera North Green Team and delivered the company Carbon Literacy Training. This led him to co-found Sustainable Arts in Leeds, a not-for-profit organisation which encourages arts and culture organisations to work together to lower the sector's carbon footprint. Now working as the General Manager of Sustainable Arts in Leeds, Jamie has been working closely with Opera North to deliver the Green Season, which opens at Leeds Grand Theatre with Falstaff on the 28th of September. Hi Jamie, thank you so much for uh, coming and meeting me this morning. I'm really excited to speak to you. I think there's a lot to speak about and we've known each other for a while. Um, mm. You <laughs> worked at Upfront North for quite a few years. Yeah, 11 um, years in total. 11 years in yeah. total. <laughs> But I thought we might start this conversation from the beginning maybe. I read that you studied sound technology at Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts mm. and I was wondering what inspired you to choose this study yeah it was a bit of an odd one um so when i was around 15 years old probably about 15 16 um i was in a metal band which was quite right. fun so i was a singer in a metal band that was a uh, very very cool I've, uh, i sort of hit my peak and it's been downhill ever since <laughs> um so when i was doing that um i kind of got a bit of an understanding of what was going on in terms of like you know what was what was the person behind the desk doing mm-hmm. um and got a bit interested in kind of the recording aspects as well when we we're in the recording studio i was like wow this is kind of cool um and then uh, it came to going to college um and then i went to the kind of uh, the music tech department they had their own sort of uh, like bit when it, when they were doing an open evening and i went in there and i was like yeah this is this is my home <laughs> I, i belong here there was just loads of like loads of kit and like broken kind of equipment there was a guy going mad on a synthesizer in the corner and i was like yeah this this is my vibe mm-hmm. um, which was quite cool um because i've always been like a bit of a a serial tinkerer like I've always been kind of I used to get into trouble a lot when I was a kid for like taking things apart like taking my toys apart and breaking things but it was I was always trying to like figure out how things worked yeah um so yeah going into like technical stuff I think was a bit of a I don't know I think it was sort of predisposed that way <laughs> so I did um, two years of college 
and then I took a year out to go and work in a recording studio for a bit okay, um, yeah. just to um, actually put a bit of it into practice and then yeah I went to the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts for three years to study sound technology and then pretty much as soon as I finished that I came to Opera North and, and that was that really. <laughs> so do you feel the study you did plus the year of work experience you did equipped you well to start a career and, and work professionally in yeah, that Yeah absolutely I mean I remember especially with music technology and sound technology um, people always say you know you, you can learn it on the job and there is quite there's an element of truth in that but I think actually having study in it it gives you a much deeper grounding than just learning the kind of just how do you operate a desk it's like you can learn how to operate a desk but unless you really know what it's doing to the sound behind the scenes then you don't have that deeper knowledge of it mm -hmm. so you progress a lot faster like because you're yeah. not having to prove like you know I know the basics of like how gain and routing and all of this sort of stuff works and a mixing console it's like no I get I get all of that yeah. it's just proving that like yeah You, you can do it with your eyes closed and then you just you progress really really rapidly so it really helped and it was it was interesting as well that you I think going and doing the sort of study aspects of it you you learn a lot of things that you wouldn't learn on the job and then you think okay. at the time like oh well this is kind of pointless why am I learning about this and then it sort of comes back to haunt you later on <laughs> which has been really interesting and it was like things like you know I remember learning at school like about Pythagoras I'm like I'm not going to yes. use that and I, I remember having to use it um, when I was doing the technical management stuff in the assembly room and I was trying to work out how to get an access ramp onto the stage and I was like I know how long the ramp is and I know how high the stage is so I need to know how much space I need to leave around it and stuff and I was like Like, damn it, that's like that's in the trigonometry. That's trigonometry, isn't it? It's like, God's sake! <laughs> it's like my maths teacher's going to be like, I told you so. Yeah. I told you to use it. Um, but it's things like um, so. Similar in kind of sound technology, there's this mm -hmm. um, recording technique that I remember learning about called ambisonics, and it didn't. And it was really, really niche up until about three years ago when it started being used really heavily in VR. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of having its heyday now. And I think it's really cool that I learned about it in like 2009. I was like, Amazing. who cares about this? And then it's yeah, like, yeah. it comes back, you know, nearly 20 years later, being like, here it is. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And and do you feel that the fact you did that three years, all that experience before starting applying for jobs, then it helped you get the job out of Far North? Or how did you go about getting your first paid work yeah. as a sound engineer? Well, Lippa was really good in that it actively encouraged you to like work outside mm -hmm. so like the studios they were open 24 7 so you could book in anytime you want you could go in um if you ever had like uh, an idea for an event or anything like that you can borrow the equipment and it was like really good <laughs> like really good quality yeah. equipment um so they were very they tried to instill that ethos in like you have to actually go out and get work yeah um so while i was at uni um so i did a tour internationally with a band while i was there um i did a festival up in norway uh which was really cool so just through I and mean, in the beginning you will just have to do things for free for mates and yeah. that kind of thing um and actually i think one of the best gigs i ever did was in a cafe Um, with two two speakers, two different brands, and remember, I only had like three knockoff Shure SM58s and a Behringer desk. Everything was red, <laughs> like just because I was just driving everything really, really loud. It was the best gig ever did, and I think it was it go. was just such good experience. And yeah. it's it, that was another thing. And I think especially with music technology, everybody gets a bit kind of like I don't know, they get really fussy about what gear they have and that kind of thing mm -hmm. and I think one of the 
one of the very cool things about doing that kind of going out and doing free work and doing things with uh, trying to get good results out of equipment that was less than ideal yep. was really good for later on when equipment is just better quality and everything you're like oh well you know that's I, easy then <laughs> yeah, this, yeah this is easy i can do this with my eyes closed yeah, yeah. and then it but it unlocks that kind of like that creative element as mm-hmm. well because i think if you're not worrying about like you know is the equipment going to fail on me then it allows you to kind of explore more of the creative aspect of it yeah yeah um and that was another another thing i guess coming from that kind of musical background as well it, it was especially for sound technology it was a way to express creativity it's been an interesting career path yeah, yeah. Um, and then obviously i don't do any of that anymore as well so yes <laughs> you were you worked for quite a long time at the howard assembly room so what was the work like there? yeah what so kind of things did you do so i started off as a casual technician i would do the sound for bands It was it was another really good way of sort of getting better at my sort of practice really, and then what I did uh, was I went and toured with Mainstage Opera North for a year, uh, doing all the sound and video stuff, uh, which was interesting. So because I mean, doing sound for live bands and doing sound for opera are two completely different. Did things. you know anything about opera? Oh no, nothing, absolutely <laughs> yes. nothing at all. So I just thought, oh, well, yeah, it's fine. You know, all them, all them cast are going to be mic'd up, and then you know, all the yeah. orchestra will be mic'd up, and everything. You walk in, and there's nothing, and you're like. Well, what am I here to do? <laughs> But it was about, it's that kind of subtle reinforcement and it was like doing sound effects and doing things that were in, because a lot of the, obviously the pieces are period, so you've got to do things in a way that makes it so the audience don't realise what you're doing. Mm. And it's actually really hard. I think it's probably the hardest thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like, it's really yeah, difficult because yeah. you've got to appeal to the kind of opera, opera purist. Like if they see your speaker, they'll, they'll come for you. Yeah. <laughs> At the end, they'll, they'll get you. <laughs> Um, so it was, yeah, it was fascinating. And then um, I was kind of in and out doing freelance work. And then yeah, I went over to the Howard Assembly Room to do the the senior technician and the technical manager. Uh, it was less hands on, um, especially towards as I kind of like progressed through the role. It, there was still elements of doing like sound and lighting and video for bands and that kind of thing, but it did become more around the other stuff. So making sure that the venue was fit for purpose and constantly making sure yeah, that yeah. the equipment worked um, and that it was the best it could possibly be. Doing all of the advancing for bands, which was contacting all of them ahead of time saying you know what what do you need making sure that the gig happened and then there was all the kind of scheduling of all the staff making sure that everything was in the right place at the right time yeah. and and then doing all the health and safety legislation and all of that kind of thing so it was yeah. all of the other stuff around making events happen yeah, yeah. and i think it's one of the i mean i found it really rewarding and really fascinating you know the thing that you see on stage is yeah. just one very small point in this massive journey. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, People it was don't really realise cool. the work that goes behind. Oh, yeah. It's an yeah. incredible amount of work with yeah. really highly technical and like really knowledgeable people knowing yeah. these very niche bits of it. It's incredible the amount of knowledge that goes into these very kind of effectively like 90-minute shows mm. <laughs> and, you know, the, all of the other stuff around it. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. Is there a show that particularly stands out for you that you've worked on? Mm. Oh, there was one, um, Staff Bender Belilly or... M. Bongwana Star, they're, they're basically the same band, but they kind of, they rebranded. But they were all musicians with access needs, or the, the majority of the, the band had access needs. Yeah. So I remember having to um, like build a ramp onto stage and all that kind of thing, and it was quite difficult technically. And then it was just the sheer amount of energy that was coming from them, coming from the stage. It was incredible. I just remember, like, standing back being like, you know, I kind of made that happen. That's that's really cool. Like, 
that actually probably wouldn't have come together if it wasn't for me, which is, you know, quite rewarding. And there was another similar one with, um, oh, they're called the Mahatella Queens um, that played in the assembly room, it was like 2018 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember all throughout the day, um, we were getting updates because I think one of them had like visa issues or something and then something happened with their travel and we're like, oh, man, I don't think this gig's happening. Oh. And then I remember they loaded in. We had something like half an hour to do the sound check. Um, but they were, they were incredible. I mean, like, they two of the music were in their 70s and one of them was the granddaughter of one of the originals so there's two 70 year olds and like a 16 year old on stage and then they're just again it was just the sheer amount of energy coming off the stage it was one of the best things I've ever seen yeah there was a, there was a lot and it was one of the fascinating things is the majority of the stuff that was on in the assembly room was like I've never heard of that no yeah. idea what that is and then there were some things where I'm like I don't, I don't know what I'm going to think to this one of those I remember Tanya Tagach who was doing um, something called Nanook of the North oh which yeah which is like I a throat singer that. yeah that's amazing yeah and I was like oh god yeah. what is this going to be like and it was incredible yeah I always loved that about the assembly rooms for younger people who are maybe listening to us and interesting in a career and in technical um, work what would you say is the most challenging aspect of that work and maybe what would you say is the most important skill to develop as a young mm. person it's interesting getting your first break I think is probably one of the hardest things because it's it's an interesting industry and there's actually not that many people in it yeah. <laughs> you'd think there were but there really isn't and we all kind of know each other and it's a bit weird <laughs> so it's really interesting that all of the kind of technical managers we all sort of knew each other we sort of keep tracks keep track of who was where and mm-hmm. it was quite yeah it was quite interesting so I'd say that like getting in was the hardest bit but once you're in you're in and it's fine and it makes it sound like a sort of elite club and it's not all do you have any advice about how to get into that circle definitely because yeah. it's about and it sort of um, goes back to your previous question really mm-hmm. around what skills you need to develop and it's actually more about soft skills than it is about technical skills I think and actually being a personable person mm-hmm. and I think and you know being easy to work with because the job is brutal <laughs> quite yeah. often yeah you, know, you will be doing like 14 hour days and yeah. you know you will be you'll have to do physical work and you have to work at height and you may not get your break and you'll just have to like scoff a sandwich in five minutes because like you know the band have showed up late and now they've been really demanding and the technical spec you said was a complete lie and we always call them the book of lies because <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're always wrong um, so, and it, it's really hard so you've got to like the people you work with yeah. and you've got to be a team and it's just if if they don't like you you just won't get asked back so yeah. it's that you've got to be kind of personable and flexible and approachable and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, and I think yeah that that's how you get your break is by coming in showing you competent and being being nice <laughs> you, you're way more likely to get asked back than, um, than if you come in and thinking you know everything and just being really difficult I think it's probably a general rule isn't it definitely oh. yeah I think so yeah the world's hard enough just be nice
work you did as technical manager at the Howard Assembly Room, you also became the Green Champion at yeah. for North, and you chaired the Green Team and also won carbon literacy training for the company. What motivated you to do this? I don't know. There's a few reasons, really. I think that sustainability in the climate crisis—it's like it's like the one big problem. Yeah. <laughs> I always think um, it's interesting. Like coming from a kind of technical background, you always see as like these solutions as things to be fixed. And like you look at kind of um, you know making equipment talk to each other. It's like what well, if you just plug this thing and do this thing and then this thing will work. It's like climate change is just that times a million. You know, it's, it's the biggest possible thing. Like how can you potentially change? everything about everything <laughs> yeah. and I just think it's uh, I, don't, I don't know I just feel that really like I don't know really appeals to me in some weird way being like how can I fix everything at all like everything in the world um, so there's, there's that aspect and then also it's just that kind of connection to to nature like I've always I've always had some of my earliest memories were like going to like my, my granddad's allotment and helping him out and yeah. it was an old landfill it sounds really bad but it was an old landfill site but they let it go back to nature and it split it was basically equidistant between mine and my best friend's house so we'd just meet there and we'd like build dens and we'd just basically just stay out there until the sun went down it was really lovely I just wanted to do my bit more than anything and then I think when uh, when Upper North they kind of put the call out saying uh, well we're looking to start a green team who wants to be a part of it and like I put myself forward and then got elected as the chair for it there was a couple of like a bit of opportune timing and the the Howard assembly room was about to close for a building project so I was like well this is great because it means I can really dedicate a lot of time to this because you know the yeah. venue's not really going to be doing that much <laughs> yeah. um, so I did so, so like yeah we set up the green team um, we looked at kind of sustainability within the building project as well Um, and started to think around how could we make sure that sustainability is embedded within this project, making sure that it's thought about for everything. Um, and then we're thinking about like operational aspects as well, like how can we make sure that people aren't like wasting electricity, making sure the waste goes into the right places and that kind of thing. And then also making sure that people had the the knowledge to to feel like what they were doing was making a difference. Yeah. And that's kind of when the carbon literacy training came into it because mm -hmm. I was trying to have discussions around energy management and things like uh, things that are quite like top level I think but then yeah. at that time I think in around 2017-2018 if you had recycling bins you were seen as like the apex of like sustainable <laughs> best practice so I was trying to talk yeah. around like you know we need to be looking at energy management we need to come up with an energy management system we need to be looking at this and this and this and then the response was it felt a bit like but we have recycling bins so that's when the kind of carbon literacy training came in and it gave the participants an understanding of the science behind climate change how we got to this point Did you develop the resources for that yeah. training yet? Yeah, so the, yeah. the carbon literacy projects, they provide you with a kind of a framework to yeah. say, this is what your training course needs to cover, but then you actually need to go and write the course. But the, the benefit in that is you, it's really flexible, so you can really tailor it to your audience. So when I was delivering yeah. it within Opera North, I had a different course for uh, people who work in marketing versus people who worked in costumes. Yeah. So for people in marketing, was talking around, you know, the paper of leaflets and yeah. how you can utilize like um, digital programs and that kind of thing whereas for costume it was around uh, sustainable fabrics and reuse and that kind of thing yeah. so it was really cool in that respect um, but that training course I delivered it while I was here to about 500 people so obviously yeah, all 250 enough. within Opera North and then I also delivered it externally to a bunch of organizations um, and then while all of this was going on um, I joined the Leeds Climate Commission 
Um, so they're like an arm's length organisation from the council and they sort of advise the council on sustainability strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was at a Leeds Climate Commission networking event and then I happened to meet a guy called Phil Holgate. Uh, he's now head of production sustainability for ITV Studios. Um, and then I was talking to him about the challenges that Opera was facing and saying, well, you know, Opera has a has a challenge in that, you know, we tour and we're taking these big trucks from place to place to place and yeah. have these big lighting rigs and these sets need constructing or this kind of thing. And then he was talking about it from TV's perspective and he's like, well, you know, we transfer loads of cast and crew from location to location to location. We have these big lighting rigs and sets and you're like, well, it's just the same it's stuff. It's the same, yeah, yeah. It's like, why Why did we both have to find this out in, kind of, in isolation? Like, why mm-hmm. wasn't there a forum where we could actually find these things out together? And yeah, then also yeah. potentially come to common solutions that's it yeah. and then from that we 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 gathered together with more kind of like-minded individuals and we founded sale uh, which is sustainable arts in leeds we formed this kind of like uh, this network of craven cultural organizations who wanted to come together and that's kind of grown from there one of the first things we did was start to deliver the carbon literacy training so we basically I managed to talk Opera North into just gifting Sale its pack and saying, hey, you know, we can we can deliver it much further and faster if you let Sale do it. So uh, that training course now has been delivered to over a thousand people. So it's kind of spread out even further. So there's not many organizations in Leeds now that haven't had at least one member of staff trained in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been spread quite far and wide, which is really cool. That's great. Um, and then, yeah, and then sale has kind of gone gone on from sort of strength to strength, really. And then in November last year, I sort of jumped ship from Upper North and went to go and work for sale full time, which is quite yeah, cool. Yeah, so what, what is your work like now, like compared to <laughs> what you used to do? Yeah. <laughs> it's different. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting how some of the, the, the technical, the, the sort of the skills from being a technician are directly transferable. Yeah. So my role within sale is to be the general manager. So I sort of look after everything to do with the with the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of things around, you know, health and safety compliance and scheduling and like all of these things that I was doing in the yeah. as a technical manager, like, oh, it's just the same stuff. Um, it's things like insurances and making sure that operationally every, everybody has what they need to do to do the job. Yeah. Um, but then it goes further in terms of like, I have to do loads of stuff about fundraising and business plans and yeah. uh, cash flow forecasting. That's a new thing. I didn't know anything about that. And then yeah. had to do like a five-year cash flow forecast. I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to just like make one up and then just check it by a guy I know who's an accountant. was like, does, does that look right? <laughs> like, I don't know what this is. Um, which is quite cool. Um, but yeah, we do a lot of um, working with basically the entire sector so it's kind of taking that uh, what we're doing for Opera North and so sort of multiplying it across everything mm-hmm. and we've just sort of branched out from Leeds into West Yorkshire as well so we now oh, cover brilliant. quite a large geographic yeah. region uh, which is a bit unwieldy um, but we'll, we'll kind of we'll get there and yeah we, we basically just support the sector in whatever it needs really because our kind of ethos behind it really is thinking if everybody does this in isolation, if everybody sort of looks after their own patch and is like, we're going to try and make our organisation more sustainable, they're only going to have limited success. Because well, it's probably also about people coming together to share resources and things yeah, like that. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The way that this is going to be solved is by everybody working together and focusing, I think, on locality mm-hmm. and thinking around how do you, not just in terms of like um, cutting down on carbon footprints, for example, by having your resources closer to you, but it's also spending your money locally locally and stimulating the local economy yeah. like rather than sending money abroad to god knows where to do god knows what it's just yeah. actually spending money locally investing things here and i think there's a really i think there's a really good model there to be sort of explored mm-hmm. um but yeah it's uh it's very 
interesting work that throws a lot of curveballs because they're really cool. I mean, one of the things that's equal parts exciting and frightening is nobody's done this before. So every time we try something, we're like, hey, well, let's just see if this works, (laughs) which is quite cool. But yeah, also quite frightening at the same time because it could it could all go disastrously wrong. But I'm hoping it won't. It's amazing to be tangibly doing something to make things better. Yeah, Um, that's absolutely. I think climate change is such a big, scary thing that I think a lot of people think, okay, it's there, but I can't do anything about it. Yeah. But you are doing something about it and, and, and trying to find solution and showing people how to go about it, which yeah. is amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, there's one um, really good thing that I saw uh, when I went, I went to Berlin um, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So there's a remaining bit of the, of the Berlin Wall and it says on it, many hands who do many small things in many small places that can alter the face of the earth. And I just I really like that. And I think that's yeah. what we're trying to trying to do. And it's, you know, climate change is, it's big, it's massive, it's everything. But it's yeah. like, well, if you can do your bit in your corner and just know that everybody else is doing their bit, then it's not, it's not as big and scary. It's actually part of a community and it's probably part of the biggest societal shift that humanity's ever known. Yeah. It's like, that's incredibly empowering to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And I think um, there's also like uh, Christina Figueroa, so she was instrumental in uh, the signing of the Paris Climate Agreement in, um, in 2015. And she coined the term being a, a stubborn optimist <laughs> as well, which I kind of, I really like. Like, we you know, need more people like that. I, I, I agree, totally. Yeah. It's like, and I, and I get it. I get why people find it so big and so scary. And, and it is, you know, every time I do the carbon literacy training, I always tell people, you know, it's it's depressing, you know, but there are a lot of people doing a lot of really cool things There's a lot, a lot of, of places. Hope as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And a lot of opportunity as yeah. well. So, Brilliant. yeah. So this autumn, Up for North is presenting a green season, and I know you've been back and involved <laughs> in, uh, in developing it. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about it and what it involved and why it's different to what we've done before? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. There was a, a new resource created called the Theatre Green Book, which was released in, I think it was in 2020 or 2021. And there was a, a guy called Paddy Dillon who kind of brought the whole thing together and he was finding that there was a lot of knowledge already within the theatre sector related to environmental sustainability and how you can make productions in a sustainable way. Mm-hmm. So what he kind of did was bring the sector together to be like, well, tell you tell me what sustainable productions look like. And then from that, they created the resource called the Theatre Green Book. Um, so there's three volumes to it. Um, volume one is sustainable productions, which we're using to inform the green season. And then there's also sustainable buildings and sustainable operations as well. What Opera North are doing for the green season is sort of taking the Fit Green Book and using it as a as a kind of blueprint, really, to change the way it does its on-stage productions. Uh, three new productions uh, being created, which are uh, Verdi's Falstaff, La Rondine, Ipecini, and... Mask of Might, which is a new, brand new opera. They call it a recycled opera, <laughs> which is quite cool. Um, but it's from the music from Purcell. So these three productions, they've been made basically from the same set. Um, and the set changes depending on the production and different elements kind of come in and out. Um, and it's very different to normal productions, firstly because of that kind of three-in-one model. Usually you'd have three different sets for three different productions rather than using one set for three, mm-hmm. um, which is quite cool. Um, and it's also 
so sets, costumes, props, all of those kinds of things, a lot of them are made new without very, not often with a lot of thought of the environmental sustainability aspects of it, which has thrown up some very kind of interesting challenges and opportunities as well. So uh, taking costume as an example is the one that I always kind of fall back to is if you think of costumes, you're like, well, you know, you can go to like secondhand shops, for example, and you could potentially find a piece that will work quite well. And you think, well, that's that's great. But first and foremost, where? <laughs> yeah. So you're going to have to find, you're going to have to allow more time for somebody to go out and search all of the charity shops for exactly what you're looking for. Yeah. Then it may not be exactly what you're looking for. So you'll need to modify it in some way, whether that you let's say, you know, it's a dress, you might need to make it longer, shorter, you might need to change it. You know, all of these different things it might be in the wrong color, for example, you might need to break it down. So there's that aspect. There's also the aspect of it needs to stand up to the rigors of touring. So if you think for, for touring productions, they do on stage, they get really heavily worn every night, then they get packed up into a crate and then they go to the next venue and then they go through the same process again and they need to stand up to that and then they need to stand up being put into storage for ages and then be brought out at a later day. And then there's also the kind of what do you do with, um, let's say you've made a costume for the principal or if the principal's sick. And yeah. you need you need a costume for the cover. And you're like, well, if it's a very unique item, you don't have one <laughs> because you haven't made one. Yeah. So then, what do you do? So there's some really difficult kind of things around that. So then mm. you you can understand the mentality of like, well, why don't you just make it from scratch from then? Scratch, uh... Because you know you can make it exactly how you want. You can make as many as you want. Um, it'll stand up to the rigors of touring and all of that kind of thing. Look, I mean, Opera North haven't done that. They've actually tried to stay as pure as possible to the kind of thinkers of the Theatre Green Book. There's some instances where it's been, actually, we, we can't do that. We can't get that from recycled material or secondhand yeah. or whatever. Like, we have to make it. So I think there's one piece in La Rondonet specifically that was, it was so unique. They were like, there's nowhere we can find that. I don't think that exists anywhere. So they had to make it from scratch. But then there was bits of it where they were able to use some of the stuff from stores. Okay. So there's been a, a lot of kind of challenges and stuff gone into it. But it's been, it's been fascinating. Like the, the Especially the, the production team who've been making the set. Um, usually, um, designer comes up with the kind of the design for the set. They talk to Opera North. Opera North then basically subcontracts that out to another organisation to make the set and then deliver it. Mm-hmm. This time Opera North have done it themselves which is really cool. So they've had to set up a workshop in, in the stores, yeah. uh, which they've never done before. And then um, it's been amazing watching them work where they've been like, okay, well, we need to create this bit for this set. Oh, I think there's a bit of metal from that show that might do that. So then they've taken yeah. it out and like cut it down and welded it and be like, oh yeah, that works. And it's been fascinating watching them work. You know, back in Shakespeare's time, there was, there was nothing. There was just people on stage and they had to kind of create the world for you. Mm. And then as we've sort of gone on, we now have like lighting and sound and video and automation, all these kinds of things. And I think trying to strip it back to its basics and be like, you only have a certain amount of resource to make this show happen and make it immersive. Mm-hmm. It forces, I think, the kind of creative team to kind of rely on themselves a bit more and kind of breed creativity a bit more. As an, as an audience as well, it, it forces you to use your imagination a bit more, uh, which, mm. is, which I think is exciting. I think yeah. it's great. And I think it's been interesting talking with everyone who's involved in the production and the like, you know, we don't think that anybody will feel shortchanged by it or mm-hmm. anything like that. Because the, what I think there is that sort of panic. It's like, oh, you're just going to be making a recycled thing, so you're just going to shove a bunch of junk on stage and <laughs> charge the normal po- ticket price. And it's not that all. Like, there's actually been so much thought and care and everything that's gone into it. It's incredible. Hmm. I think it's, yeah, and I, I just think it's brilliant. 
quite big shift in your career. And how do you feel about this change today, do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I th there was a, a really good video that I saw um, where it was Steve Jobs, who's the obviously co-founder of Apple, and he was doing a sort of commencement address at Stanford University, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And he, one of the things he said was like, you can only ever connect the dots going backwards. And I think it's really it's a really fascinating kind of concept. Really, the, I think a lot of people think you can plan your sort of life trajectory and your career trajectory. Out. It's a line going up. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not. It's, it's full not. of kind it's of like life. Yeah, exactly. It's full of dead ends and interesting things you would never have considered, and mm. and that kind of thing. And it's I think it's one of the really one of the really cool things is that you can pivot and you can explore these new things. And I think if you, anybody you speak to is like, hey, you know, are you doing what you thought you'd do when you were a kid? It's like, I don't think anybody is. But are you happy? It's like, well, most people probably are with, with what they're doing. So it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think it, it, it's led me to a place I didn't think I'd be in like, you know, five, ten years ago. But it's cool. It's interesting. I get to do something that I care about and I get to do something about it, which yeah. is quite cool. So, but then, yeah, some, I do sometimes feel like I just, well, I did sound for Jimmy Carr like two weeks ago because I was like, I have to, I have to keep my hand in, you know? <laughs> so I'd, yeah, I'd uh, sort of do a little bit of sound every now and then. Just, to, oh, just so, so you do miss it a bit? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a little bit. I was wondering if you might have any advice for people who might, might be in the middle of thinking of making a huge change in their life or career. Yeah, I mean, it was... <laughs> so last November, when I sort of jumped ship from Opera North to Sale, uh, we only had enough funding to keep us going until this April. Mm -hmm. And I was like, am I insane <laughs> for doing this? Because like, this is basically um, a hugely, I'm, I'm, I'd be leaving something that's like secure to go and do something that's completely insecure, work for a starter, work for myself, never been done before, don't know, don't know if it's going to be successful or not. And I always think, well, it's like betting on yourself. And I just think that, I'd take that bet, you know? Like, if you, you're betting on yourself that you can make a success of it. There's a hell of a motivator. Yeah. <laughs> to be like, you know, if I don't do this, like, I'm going to be... Do you find you're working, like, a hundred times harder then? No. <laughs> no, it's interesting. It, it makes you more strategic. And I just think, yeah. you you know, you... Yeah, you rely on yourself and you... I don't know, you have to be a bit more confident in your ability and stuff. And I think it's just, just take the leap. You know, because I think for, for every one person that takes the leap, there's a hundred who didn't. And I think you've, you've got to. Like, don't just, you know, if you think it's a good idea and you're a bit hesitant, like, do it, you know. <laughs> yeah, any advice for young people who might be interested in starting a career in the arts? Hmm. Yeah, it's... I just think it's the, the one of the best kind of industries to be in. I think it's the it's the most interesting, the most creative, the kindest, um, as well as well as being difficult in a lot of other ways. But it's it's incredible. Like I don't regret it at all. I think it, it's interesting. Like to be in the creative kind of sector, you have to do it for the passion of it. Like you, you have to be passionate about what you do because um, if you don't have the passion, you you don't. You, there's no point, really. There's really no point in being in it. So, and if you if you do bring to it that kind of sense of passion and determination, it's incredibly rewarding. 
and you get to do these incredible things for people. And I just remember, like, there's been so many instances, like, I remember, you know, like me and you doing that kind of thing during lockdown. Yeah. We went to, like, was it Barnard Castle? Yeah, yeah. I think you're doing, like, a production outside, thinking, I just remember after, especially during the pandemic when everything was locked down and everything and being like, we're actually doing something. It was incredible, yeah. wasn't it? And it was just, just to, like, to bring that to people. Yeah. I mean, no matter in what in what way you kind of bring you bring your skills, like whether that's you know like on the stage or behind it, it's an incredible thing to be a part of. You've been listening to the Artistic Futures podcast with the fantastic Jamie Say. If you have any burning question for our future guests, or would like to suggest people you would like to meet please email education at opranorth.co.uk. You can also find us on Twitter, search Opranorth Education. See you next time.